morning church at home once again. Uh, our reading is coming from Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 29 to 45. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to save them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out of the desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of God. Well, let's bow in prayer. The sermon is going to be a little bit longer this morning. There's so much in this passage. So let me pray that God will help me to get it right and uh, that you may hear, that we may all hear and obey. So let me pray. Father, your word says that your word, the word of God, the Bible, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, we've been struggling in the shadows and the darkness. And so we pray that that light and that lamp may shine as we open your word and your spirit applies it to us. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, the key verse in our passage must be verse 38. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Now, when we understand the context in which Jesus makes that statement, it almost takes your breath away. It seems so cold and it seems so heartless. 
And yet the mission of Christ and the agenda of Christ is crystal clear. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Now, let me not get get ahead of myself. If you are new to Christchurch Midrand, new to church at home, as David and Kate welcomed you, may I also welcome you. And uh, we are delighted that you are with us this morning. A very warm welcome. We're spending eight, nine weeks looking at Mark's gospel, and uh, we're working working our way through Mark's gospel, exploring and discovering the real Jesus. That's what we're doing. Now, you will know, I don't need to tell you, that there are many versions of Jesus out there. There's the Marxist Jesus, there's the health and wealth Jesus, there's Jesus, the freedom fighter, there's new age Jesus. All of those, by the way, are distortions. What we are doing is looking at the earliest source documents of Jesus. And, of course, the earliest four source documents is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're looking at Mark. And uh, they are eyewitness reports of the life of Christ and the words of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ. So there's nothing more authentic. There's nothing more authentic. In fact, Mark, also called John Mark, was the scribe to the Apostle Peter. And uh, what he was doing was transcribing the eyewitness reports, the eyewitness testimony of Peter, who was with Jesus from the beginning. In actual fact, Peter was one of his closest disciples. So if you missed the first two talks, don't worry, they're on the website. The first one is called Jesus, the one and only. The second one is called Jesus, the King. And this morning we're having a look at Jesus, the Preacher. Three headings. I really can't improve on the publisher's words that they have here. So the three headings we're going to use to unpack this passage is what is given uh, in your Bible. Jesus heals many, number one. Number two, Jesus preaches in Galilee. And thirdly, Jesus cleanses a leper. First, let me go down to side road. Side road number one. John, uh, John Mark, as we will discover, is a brilliant, brilliant author. He never wastes a word. He never wastes a sentence. And in this gospel, what he's actually doing is he's answering three key, three key questions. That's what he's doing in this gospel. So it's not just narrative. It's not just historical events and words. No, he's answering three questions. Three questions are, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And how do we respond? And the passage we have here in front of us this morning from verse 29 falls into the first question. In fact, the first half of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 29, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily deals with that first question, who is Jesus? In fact, we saw last week that Jesus had authority. He's a man with unbelievable authority. He had authority over men. He had authority over evil spirits. And the rest of these, especially these first eight chapters, Mark Mark is answering this question, who is Jesus? Then from chapter 8, verse 30, till the end of the book, Mark is really answering the question, why did he come? And then the third question, how do we respond, is interspersed throughout uh, all 16 chapters. So that's what he's doing. He's giving us historical events. He's telling us what happened. He's telling us, he's giving us place and time and geography and what Jesus did and what Jesus said and what the opposition was. But he's actually answering one of those three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And how do we respond? In actual fact, if you had three cokey pens in red, 
blue and green. And the red was, who is Jesus? The blue was, why did he come? And the green was, how do we respond? Almost the whole of Mark's gospel, all 16 chapters, will be covered in one of those three colors. So bear that in the back of your mind. As we look at the events, as we hear the words of Jesus, John Mark is answering one of those three questions. Side road number two, which is really a test. So you didn't know you were, you were going to have a test this morning? Well, you're going to have a test. You can test yourself to see whether you're a Christian. So I'm going to give you a quick test. And it has to do with how, how you read the Bible. So let me explain. For those of us who are Christians, think back to the time when you were not a Christian. When you heard the Bible being taught, when you heard the Bible being read, when perchance you were reading the Bible for yourself, generally your attitude was to question the Bible, was to analyze the Bible, to critique the Bible. You were looking for contradictions. You were looking for loopholes. But then when you became a Christian, without realizing it, even being conscious of it, it's as if the Bible or someone through the Bible began, began questioning you, began analyzing you, critiquing you. And instead of contradictions, you found comfort. Instead of loopholes, you found waterholes to quench your spiritual thirst. You see the change? Before you were a Christian, in a sense, you stood in judgment. You thought you had authority over the Bible. Then the Holy Spirit invaded your life. The Holy Spirit gatecrashed your life. And strangely, almost unconsciously, it flipped. And now you happily submit to the authority of God and his word. So here's the test. If you are in the second category, most, most probably you're a Christian. If you're in the first category, keep reading. Keep looking for loopholes. Keep looking for contradictions. Good luck. But why not ask God to gatecrash your life as you read his word? To flip the switch so that you also can find water holes and comfort for your quenching heart. All right, let's dig in. First principle, there it is in the text. Jesus heals many. Let me, let me read again from verse 29. <clears throat> and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So remember now we are in Capernaum, that's north Israel. Jer Jerusalem is in south Israel. Uh, Jesus is at Cap Capernaum, which is a fishing port, uh, on Lake Galilee. It's really where Jesus based himself for his three years of ministry. And you'll remember from verse 21, Jesus had been teaching and casting out demons in the synagogue. And now, verse 29, it's probably late morning, early afternoon. And the first of, the first four of Jesus' disciples are, 
are with him, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. They all with him. They all there. They four tough. Those those four uh, four disciples are tough businessmen. They were in the fishing trade, probably exporting fish. Um, the original I and J. Notice again, there are two pairs of brothers here. Uh, there's James and John. Later, we find out that their nickname was the Sons of Thunder which tells you a little bit about them. Don't mess with them. Uh, And there's Andrew and Simon, and Simon is, of course, Peter, the Apostle Peter. Now, you can imagine uh, Peter later on, after the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, Peter is now relaying to John Mark, the scribe, his scribe, uh, exactly what happened. And John Mark is carefully transcribing. He's writing down everything he hears from Peter, who had been there. And uh, Peter says, John Mark, you, you, we just uh, we we just come back from the synagogue, and uh, where where Jesus had had taught with this amazing authority. I've never heard anything like it before. And uh, while he was teaching, suddenly a man burst in with an evil spirit, and uh, we were all stunned. And the evil spirit cried out. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You couldn't believe it. Jesus said a word, and the evil spirit was gone. Well, after, after that, uh, that stunning morning, John, uh, we all went back to my home and, um, just to catch our breath, and my wife and Andrew's wife came to bring us some, some sour bread and some milk. And uh, while we were still talking, we were all buzzing uh, from this this event in the synagogue in the morning. And my dear wife came came behind me and whispered in my ear, and she said, "Peter, sweetheart, um, I know you're busy, but but Mom has got so much worse this morning when you were in the synagogue, much much worse. And I really am worried. I don't know what to do. I'm at my wit's end. Diskim has run out of antibiotics, and I don't know what to do." Um, well, I didn't know what to do, Mark. I had no idea. I'd never seen Jesus do a miracle. I'd never seen him heal anyone, apart from that demon story in the synagogue this morning. And I thought to myself, well, let me ask him. So I went to Jesus. I whispered in his ear. He came with me to mom's room, and he just quietly took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever was gone. And she rushed off like normal to the kitchen to serve now, John, that was the first miracle I had seen of Jesus. I had no idea he could do miracles. In fact, at the time, I didn't know whether it really was a miracle, whether it was just a coincidence that when Jesus touched mom's hand, that's when the fever broke. But then the news got out, John. And that evening when the sun set and it was the end of the Sabbath and people were allowed to travel, well, people from all over Galilee came to the house. It was unbelievable. The blind, the deaf, the crippled, the demon-possessed. And Jesus healed them all. Extraordinary. And, and, and John, unlike, you know all the weirdos out there, there were no spells, there were no incantations, there was no holy oil or holy water, there was no mumbo-jumbo. No, just a word from Jesus. And instantly healed, instantly the evil spirit is gone. It was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it before. You know, you know, Mark, he looks so ordinary, but oh, his authority, his power is extraordinary. 
And John wrote it down. And we have it here in front of us. Let me draw out some principles. Number one, tongue-in-cheek, I think Peter is a special guy. I think he's a special husband. Many men would have left their mother-in-laws in bed, sick and silent. <laughs> but, but not Peter. You, you straight away warm to Peter. In my culture, there's a lot of jokes about a husband um, and his mother-in-law, but we don't joke about the real problem. The real problem is actually the wife and her mother-in-law. But that's for another day. Principle number two, and I'll put my tongue where it should be. Remember that John Mark knew the Old Testament. He knew the Torah. And we've already seen how he connected Genesis 1 to 3 with Mark. There are real parallels between the, between the opening chapters of Genesis and the opening chapters of Mark. So you remember in Genesis 3, the first Adam is tempted by Satan. He fails. He falls. The consequence is catastrophic. Sin, suffering, evil, death, disease enters our world. By Genesis 4, we have the first, can you believe it, the first family murder, familicide. That was Genesis 3. In Mark 1, the second Adam is also tempted by Satan. But he doesn't fail. He doesn't fall. The consequence is not catastrophic. He doesn't bring in sin and evil and death and disease. No, he brings in just the opposite. He brings in wholeness and healing and peace and joy. So the second Adam is recreating. The second Adam is reversing. He's starting to reverse the effects of the fall. He's reversing the actions of the first Adam. It's stunning. Here we have the first signs of that reversal. No wonder he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's fulfilled. The king has arrived. My third point is, is about miracles, because what we have here are miracles. You have Simon's mother-in-law being healed, and then you have countless number of people, dozens, dozens people being healed, uh, evil spirits um, uh, exorcised. Now, the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels, John, Mark, are in no way, they're not in the slightest bit embarrassed by miracles or the supernatural. They don't explain it away. They don't Photoshop it. They don't whitewash it, and nor do we. What we have here are real miracles. They are supernatural. They are real. They're historical. They're objective. And as I've often said before, if you have a problem with miracles, your problem actually isn't with miracles. Your problem is with your doctrine of God. If you have a small God, well, it's going to be hard to pull this off. If you have the God of the universe who created the entire universe, the entire cosmos, who created all the laws of nature, well, surely that God can suspend some of the laws of nature for his own purposes. That is not illogical or unreasonable at all. What we also have here in miracles is a snapshot of the full kingdom of God. It's just a taste. It's just a snapshot of the kingdom of God where Christ is king. It's a taste of the new heaven and new earth. It's a taste of the future new Jerusalem when Christ will wipe away every tear. 
So the kingdom of God is at hand. He's ushering in his kingdom, but it doesn't come all at once. It's progressive. So the miracles are snapshots, just a taste of what's to come. You know how on uh, Showmax or Netflix there are trailers, and you watch the trailers, and, uh, well, that's really what a miracle is. It's a trailer. It's a snapshot of the real thing. And he's giving us just that taste. This is what the kingdom of God will be. No more sin, no more suffering, no more, no more tears. There'll be peace, there'll be joy, there'll be wholeness. Some, some of you listening uh, um, are husbands. And uh, if you've been a husband, so I'm trying to illustrate this in another way. Some, some of you are husbands, and um, if you've been a husband for some time, you will know the scene. You're sitting in, uh, at the couch, either watching TV or reading a book or reading one of the books that you've got from, from Helen, and uh, your wife uh, comes to sit next to you, and she's very sweet this time, and she puts her arm around your shoulders, and then she says, sweetheart, I was thinking. And you know those three words, I was thinking, are the most expensive words you can have in your marriage. The other most expensive words are, while we're at it. Um, anyway, she says, I was thinking we need to repaint this lounge. It looks so dull. It looks so drab. And, of course, it never crossed your mind. And uh, then she holds up these three or four little cardboard slips. You get them from Plascon. And uh, you can also get them on Google, where you can choose that little slip uh, to see before you buy the paint. You can check out what color you want. You can compare it with the other colors in the lounge. And then your wife says, what do you prefer? And if you are a wise husband, you keep quiet at that point. Because she will say, I think we should go with that one. And if you're a wise husband, you will say, sweetheart, that is just what I had in mind. And if it's anything like my wife, when it is painted, it is stunning and it is beautiful. Well, that is what a miracle is. It's just a little piece of cardboard. It's a snapshot of the real thing which is coming. One day, there'll be no more sin, no more brokenness, no more evil, no more loneliness, no more grief. And here's a touch of that. Here's a taste of that. Principle number four is really a side road, and I want to talk about the dangers of social engineering. So stay with, stay with me. The dangers of social engineering the Roman Catholic Church from the 11th century prohibited, pre, prohibited priest nuns and, of course, the Pope from sex and marriage, and they take up to this day a vow of celibacy. So the thinking is that if you're really spiritual, there's no sex, there's no marriage. The Catholic Church also argues that the present Pope, Pope, France, Pope Francis, can trace his lineage. He's an apostle because he can trace his lineage Back to Peter, the Peter we have here in verse 29. Now, of course, we, we disagree with both of those doctrines, and this passage actually makes it quite obvious, because if Peter was the first pope, well, here, verse 30, he has a mother-in-law. And if he has a mother-in-law, you can't have a mother-in-law without having a wife and no doubt children. The Catholic Church went further in their social engineering and taught the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. 
In fact, only in 1854, the Roman Catholic Church taught the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception that, in effect, that Mary, like Jesus, had a virgin birth. Now, of course, there's no biblical basis for that whatsoever. It's true that the New Testament explicitly affirms that Mary was a virgin prior to the birth of Christ. But then in all four Gospels, in the book of Acts and some of the epistles, all mention the brothers and sisters of Jesus, which means that Mary was a normal wife, a normal mother with a family. Quickly have a look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Here are some of the enemies of Jesus. They say, is this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, at least two sisters, four brothers, two sisters. So there were at least nine people sitting around the kitchen table, Every supper time, Mary, Joseph, five boys, two girls. Have a look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 6. And then I'll make my point. Mark chapter 10, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, this is Jesus speaking, teaching about divorce. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So notice again, we are back in Genesis. Jesus is quoting from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God made them male and female. He quotes from Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and they shall become one flesh. Just note there, Jesus quotes verbatim from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, my point is this, which started with Peter's compassion for his mother-in-law, is that consistently throughout the gospel, the epistles, all of the all of the New Testament, God affirms a certain pattern, a certain template, a certain DNA for human relationships, for sex, for marriage. The Roman Catholic Church has taught that if you're really spiritual, you become a nun, you become a priest, you become a monk. And if you're really spiritual, no sex and no marriage. They are dead wrong. Sex within marriage is God's gift to us. It's God's idea. Just by the way, Rosie Moore wrote a lovely, lovely article in the Gospel Coalition Africa. You must go and have a look at it called, What is a Healthy Sex Life? Uh, so this teaching, this, this idea, which is social engineering, that if you're really spiritual, you have no sex, no marriage, that is dead wrong. Uh, it has caused unbearable suffering and agony for millions of priests and nuns. And now we also know unbelievable suffering and damage from abuse. It doesn't work. God has given a certain DNA, a certain, a certain, there are certain natural laws that God has put into place that you break at your peril. So whatever mankind has tried, um, let me just say that, that I'm not trying to have a special go at the Catholics. I'm not. It's a much bigger issue than that. Whenever mankind has tried to make his own laws and do his own social engineering, it ends in tears. It ends in tragedy. 
So apartheid was social engineering. If you were a black person, you could marry a colored person, an Indian person, but not another white person. If you were a white person, you could marry any other white person, but no black, colored, or Indian. It ended in tears, toxic tears. We're still living with the consequences, and we will for a long time. Social engineering always ends in tears. The Nazis tried social engineering on a major scale, a grand scale, because they wanted to establish a master race. So they not only killed 6 million Jews, but around 5 million non-Jews who didn't fit into their master race, their heron folk. Gypsies, blacks, homosexuals, physically disabled, mentally disabled. They had sterilization laws to weed out so-called genetic defects from the German gene pool. I place the transgender movement in the same category as social engineering. When physical sex and gender have been separated, that is social engineering. Where marriage and family is being redefined. Listen to this. Where teenagers in the UK and USA can get puberty-blocking hormones for gender reassignment. That is happening. It's terrifying makes me think of Nazi medical doctors. Google it. No, Peter had a wife. He had a mother-in-law. Mary and Joseph were a couple. They had five boys and two girls. Jesus taught that God created the male and female, not a third or a fourth or a fifth, male and female. Jesus taught that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That is God's template. That is God's DNA. That is natural law. If you distort it, it will end in tears. You see it, you see it in the physical world. world. The laws of science, the laws of nature are God's laws. So uh, there's maths, there's physics, there's chemistry, there's geology, there's gravity, there's speed of light, there's speed of sound. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how many PhDs you may have. If you discard God's natural laws, God's DNA for our physical world, the bridge will collapse. Trust me. God has given us the DNA for life. The physical world, the spiritual world, the moral world. You break it at your peril. All right, that's the first principle. And some of you are saying, well, he's, he's finally finished point one. At this rate, we'll never get out of here. And then you say, no, 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 I can switch it off and he won't know. Uh, well, okay. Second principle, Jesus preaches in Galilee. Verse 35, I hope you're still with me. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. If I use the word minister or preacher, most people wouldn't associate that word with the words pressure or stress. I know what some people say, six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. Well, let's leave it there. Certainly not the case with Jesus. 
We've just seen that in verse 32, that Jesus is under incredible pressure. Verse 33, the whole city was gathered at the door. Notice the expanse of words that John Mark uses to show the pressure. Verse 32, they brought to him all who were sick and demon-possessed. Verse 33, the whole city. Verse 34, he healed many. He cast out many demons. Imagine, imagine a corporate CEO. And she has a golden touch, Forbes 100. Nothing she touches goes wrong. Her advice is always spot on. Well, of course, she can never clean her desk. And many of you will know that. And then, of course, it just, it's just becomes the tyranny of the urgent. It tends to be uh, you at the mercy of the person who shouts the loudest or the person who manages to get, to get past your PA. That's the context of Jesus in this passage. Enormous, enormous pressure on Jesus. There's desperate human need. There's cancer. There's COVID. There's diabetes. There's critical heart issues. There's motor neuron. There's a totally paralyzed teenager from school rugby. There's a totally blind kid from birth. The pressure is unbearable. Desperate human need, lots of sick and dying people, children at death's door, woman in labor at death's door, broken legs, broken backs, broken hearts. There's no panado. There's no antibiotics. There's no blood transfusions. There's no x-rays. There's no, there's no oxygen. All clamoring for a piece of Jesus, their desperate eyes and noses pressing in against the window of Simon Peter's home. Quite obviously for Jesus, how will he respond? What's he going to do? Here's the most brilliant healer of all time. Just a touch, just a word, and the person is healed. Here's a man who can remove all physical suffering, all mental health suffering, never seen before or since. Think of it. Think of the internal pressure for Jesus. He's only 30 years old. Perhaps this is my life's work. A ministry of healing, a ministry of alleviating suffering, bringing life, hope, wholeness. So what does he do, verse 35? And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Only three times in Mark's gospel does John Mark tell us that Jesus prayed. Every time when there was a crisis. So remember, in the garden... He agonized, he sweated blood. May this cup pass from me. Well, here in verse 35 is the first crisis. What kind of ministry will I have? Notice verse 36, Simon and the disciples are of no help at all. In fact, they make things worse. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. The word search for, there is a, it's, a, it's a strong word. It's almost a hostile word. They were angry. They were hunting for him. So once again, John Mark is taking notes, and Peter is talking, and he says, you know, you, you know, John, I can just remember that early morning as if it was this morning. The crowd had grown. It grew and grew all night. There was some scuffling. People arrived from Jerusalem, from Jericho. We searched high and low for Jesus. Where was he? We finally found him on the mountain. I was furious with him. I said, Lord, with, with respect, where were you? Where, where, where you been? You should have been in town. Last night, what you did, yesterday, what you did, was unbelievable, those healings, those miracles. Jesus, don't you understand? We're at the edge. 
of starting an international healing ministry. Everyone's looking for you. Everyone wants you. We can change the world. This is the start of a worldwide movement. Never seen before. Let's go. No doubt the reason Jesus spent time in prayer, verse 35, was precisely because of this kind of pressure. It's intense. The tension, the conflict. What kind of kingdom have I come to start? What kind of Messiah am I called to be? Surely it's not wrong for me to spend my life alleviating suffering, intense suffering, agonizing suffering, touching thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives. Perhaps I can touch a 100,000 families. And Peter says to John Mark, who's taking notes, I was furious because it is so obvious. People with leukemia, with kidney failure, with brain tumors could be healed instantly. And Jesus looked at me and he said, Peter, that's, that's not why I came. I came to preach, to preach the good news. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when you understand the context, those words in verse 38 almost takes your breath away. It seems so cold. It seems so heartless, so uncaring. Imagine if you are in that crowd with your, with your sick or dying child, and Jesus turns his back and goes to the next village, because that's what he does. And yet, that's the clear purpose of Jesus. His agenda is crystal clear. He refused to be deflected from this mission, proclaiming the gospel of God, proclaiming the king has arrived, calling everyone through the ages to repent and believe. It's not that Jesus refused to heal or do miracles. We see that pity and compassion for the leper in the very next cameo. But Luke tells us in Acts 2 verse 22 that Jesus primarily did signs and wonders to show his authority, to show his deity. It's not that Jesus lacked compassion or pity, No, he had clear priorities, and they were crystal clear. Let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Here's the bottom line. Jesus understood that our spiritual eternal needs are more important than our earthly physical needs. He understood that earthly problems are relatively short and temporary. Eternal problems are eternal. Us humans rarely get that. Jesus says, the primary reason I came, not the only reason, but the primary reason I came, was was not to solve all your present problems, your health, your money, your politics, your job, your home, your career. No, I came to rescue you from God's judgment. I came to rescue you from God's wrath. I came to rescue you from hell. Which, of course, is the good news is the gospel. If you listen to the world, they will tell the church to stop preaching, stop teaching, stop talking, just roll up your sleeves, help the poor, the starving, the abused, the oppressed. Now, there's no question, my dear friends, the church and Christians ought to be involved in those, deeply involved in those. 
That's why we, the main mercy ministry of this church is Love Trust. Love Trust is owned by Christchurch Midrand. We have a school in Tembisa for 380 of the most vulnerable children in Tembisa. We have 10 teacher training colleges around the country training uh, women who are running ECDs, preschools, to become professionally qualified. By the end of this year, we should have 800 qualified preschool teachers. But my friends, if we have done all of that and we have not shared the gospel and the Bible, we have failed. The motto of Nakopila School, it's an unwritten motto. The motto of every school in the world, I can, I can vouch for it. The motto of every school in the world, the unwritten what motto is we prepare children for life. At Nakopila School, we prepare children for life and death. That's why they need the gospel and the Bible. John Piper put it so, he put it so well. He says, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So both kinds of suffering matter. If your heart does not bleed for suffering people with human needs, there's something wrong with your heart. But there is a priority. We care for all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. So be careful of a church where the primary focus is not the word of God. Be careful of that church. The primary focus is not the gospel. Perhaps the primary focus is social concern or political concern or environmental concern, signs and wonders. They have their place, but the primary focus is quite clear, is the gospel and the word of God. Lastly, lastly, third principle, finally, I hope you're still with me. hope you haven't switched me off. Jesus cleanses a leper. Let me read again from verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were come coming to him from every quarter. Now, this cameo actually answers two of Mark's key questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? Let's have a look. We can't go into all the details, but it is important that you understand what it meant to be a leper in the first century. Verse 40, and a leper came to him. That understates a very provocative and offensive encounter. Leprosy, a skin disease, was a widespread disease in ancient times. It's a terrible skin disease which eats away at your fingers, your hands, your toes, your feet, and then it continues. In those times, it was highly, highly contagious, um, and there was no cure. Lepers were all uh, often called the living dead. The cure was as difficult as raising someone from the dead, which means there was no cure. 
Added to that, leprosy was seen as God's judgment. You were spiritually unclean if you had leprosy. You were ritually unclean. It was not just a medical condition, it was a spiritual condition. You were regarded as unclean in the eyes of God and God's people, which is why you needed a spiritual cleansing. Notice there, if you will, can you make me clean? He doesn't say, heal me. He says, no, make me clean. But there's even more. If you were declared to be a leper, it was like a life sentence, a life sentence quarantine, not 10 days, not 14 days. It was life. You had to leave your family, your home, your career, your community. You had to live with other lepers in a leper colony outside the city, far outside the city, far outside the town. You were the untouchables. Social distancing was 50 meters forever. No one could come near you or touch you ever. So you not only lost your health, you lost your spiritual standing. And not only that, you lost your home, your family, your work, your friends, because you had to live in isolation for for the rest of your life. I mean, can you imagine that? You wake up in the morning and you see things are not right in your fingers and this unbelievable dread to be separated from, from your husband, from your children, from your sisters, from your friends forever. You can shout at each other from 50 meters. You can, you can understand the dread if you were diagnosed with leprosy. So against all the rules, against all the rules, a leper comes up to Jesus. He'd heard about the healings. He begs him, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus also, against all the rules, stretches out his hand and touches him and says to him, I will be clean. And instantly, he's clean. Verse 44, Jesus then expressly tells him not to tell anyone what's happened. The reason is he didn't want want to be known as a miracle worker, as as a healer, because they would be, well, he wouldn't be able to preach the gospel, which is exactly what happened, verse 45. The leper told everyone, and precisely what Jesus didn't want is what happened. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. Two things about Jesus as we close. Number one, who is he? Well, he's not only a man with extraordinary authority and extraordinary power, he's a man with extraordinary compassion. Verse 41, moved with pity. Now, the word there has a very, very deep meaning. It's the idea of the depth of feelings, the longings churning within someone. It has the idea of one's guts, one's intestines. That's how deeply Jesus feels the pain and the agony. What does that tell us about Jesus? It says that when he sees a man in the depth of his despair, his medical despair, his spiritual uncleanliness, the depth of social distancing and isolation, instead of recoiling in revulsion, and it was revolting, he stretches out his hand and he touches him. Imagine. Perhaps it had been years and years since the leper had felt the touch of a human hand. 
Jesus touches him. Perhaps that's how you feel this morning, like a leper. Depressed, discouraged, in the depth of despair, in the depth of sin and guilt, in the depth of existential loneliness. And Jesus, instead of recoiling in revulsion, embraces you. You see, the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, it's open arms. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It's his heart. He can't unpity himself just as much as you and I can't change the color of our eyes. He can't unpity himself. It's who he is. It's what gets him up in the morning. He never cringes. He never holds his nose for touching dirty sinners and broken sufferers like you and me. He never tires of that. His embrace is who he is. It's his heart. It's what he does. It's what he loves to do. We think that Jesus recoils from us when we sin, when we fail. We think Jesus recoils from us when we blow it again. We think Jesus cringes, is embarrassed when we're struggling. No, the opposite. His natural response is one of pity. He embraces us. That's why he gets up in the morning. Second question, why did he come? Well, we have the first hint here in Mark's gospel of the atonement of Christ. The substitutionary death of Christ in my place. We have the first hint of that. Have a look at this passage. It's one of the literary techniques of Mark. He compares, he speaks about insiders, outsiders, and we'll pick it up a number of times in Mark's gospel. Well, here, at the start of the narrative, have a look quickly. The leper is the outsider. He's the untouchable. He's living outside the warmth of God's people, God's blessing. Jesus is the insider. He's moving in and out of towns and homes and communities. Then Jesus touches the leper. That's the switch. And the cleanliness and the righteousness and the wholeness of Jesus floods onto the leper. And the uncleanliness, the ritual uncleanliness, floods onto Jesus. And then do you notice at the end of the story, The leper is now the insider, and Jesus is the outsider. So we are sinners. Christ is sinless. Christ takes on our sin so that in God's sight we can be righteous. Jesus, the insider, becomes the outsider so that the outsider can become the insider. That's the gospel. That's the first hint in John Mark's gospel of the substitutionary death of Christ that on the cross he took the rubbish, the garbage, the sin of people like you and me and placed it upon Christ. And he took the righteousness of Christ and placed it upon us so that we could be insiders. The leper said, if you will... You can make me clean. Perhaps this morning, that's what you need to say. Oh, Lord Jesus, 
You know where I am. Please, please, I beg you, if you will, make me clean. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. And you may want to tell God where you are. Father, we pray that you will forgive us when we have sought for refuge, for cleansing, for purpose, for life in other things, and not Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, when we have sunk into our despair, our lack of faith, perhaps our sin. And have not reached out to Jesus, thinking that he doesn't care. Help us, Lord, to, like the leper, call on you and say, Oh, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Father, help us by your Spirit to realize our brokenness, our sinfulness, our emptiness, and call on you for mercy. And we know that you will hear. And now, Lord, go with us into this week, Lord. It's another tough week for all of us. And uh, we pray your hand upon us. Give us strength. Give us grace. Give us patience. Give us energy that we may serve those around us and serve you. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it's been great to have you here with us this morning. Thank you so much for being with us. Next week, we're going to pick up chapter 2, verse 1, God willing. So please read chapter 2 before we come to it next week. Do go onto the website and link in with one of our life groups. Uh, Get your kids, your teenagers to link in with the programs. Come and fetch one of those two books here at the office. God bless you. Have a good week.